Well, I'm excited that the next couple of weeks, uh, Michael is going to be filling in for me preaching. Uh, I'm going to be here, which means I get to hear somebody else preach. So thank you, Michael, for filling in. And I look forward to that. I think it's going to be great. He's going to be continuing in uh, our current series called The Coronavirus and the Apocalypse. (laughs) We're actually in a series for Lent called A View from the Cross. So that's what we're going to be um, entering into again this morning. This is uh, taking some time to look at what Jesus would have seen, imagining things through his eyes and specifically looking at the things that are recorded in Scripture that he that it was said that he saw as he was up on the cross. So that's a series that we're going to be working through right now. Today we're going to be reading from Mark 15, so if you have a Bible or you want to use your Bible app and open up to that, um, we're going to be reading that in just a moment. So I, I love theme parks. Uh, I love the rides. I love the excitement of it. I, I hate the crowds. That's one of the things that keeps me away more than probably I would be otherwise. Two years ago, we had the chance to take our kids to Disneyland for the first time for them. My wife and I had been before. And it's a massive park, right? And I know there's bigger ones out there, but Disneyland is still a massive park down in um, California. And getting from one place to another in this massive park can be difficult, not because of the distance, but because of the masses of people. It just boggles the mind how many people are in a place like that. They've created these full-on wide streets, and yet you find yourself moving from place to place, shoulder to shoulder, crammed in this flowing, moving amoeba mass of people as you're going through there. I imagine it's probably a little bit different today. Today might be a good day to go. And of course, everyone um, enters into that, this mode when you get into a crowd like that of this mindset of every man or every woman for themselves, Right? That I'm, I'm just trying to get from point A to point B, and the rest of you are just objects in my way. Objects I need to overcome and I need to pass. Have you ever had that experience when you're moving through a crowd like that, and then you bump into someone you actually know? And it takes a moment for your brain to shift from you're an object I need to overcome to, oh, you're a human being. Hi, how are you doing? It's nice to see you. That happened to me when we were down in uh, Seattle Waterfront with my brother and his family recently. And we were, uh, it was night, but it was so crowded. And we're walking along the sidewalk. And all of a sudden, I'm fo- you know, following someone and kind of moving this mass. And I look ahead, and there's people I know from Stanwood right in front of me. And so I grab my friend on the shoulder. And he actually is a pastor at Commander Chapel. And he kind of jumped, like, you know, who's grabbing me in the middle of this crowd? So he said hi. But in this mass of humanity, you know, Heaven forbid you should try to stop or change direction in the middle of that. I mean, you would be trampled, right? People would at least be angry. So here's my idea for a new reality TV show. I want to take soon-to-be new parents, newlyweds, and I want to let them borrow a fussing, hungry baby and a toddler, and I want to send them into Disneyland and then film it. I think that would make some good TV entertainment. I mean, if there is something that could challenge a marriage, and to be humane, I think we'd probably have to have emergency personnel ready to rescue the children. And you'd probably also have to do some marriage counseling at the end to just keep it fair, right? 
But we've all been there. We've been to, maybe not Disneyland, but sporting events here, maybe at CenturyLink or T-Mobile Park. You've been to the airport, and you've been in that mass of humanity when you've been moving around, and automatically, almost reflexively, you pull into yourself. You pull into that mode, thinking only of yourself and your destination. You get tunnel vision. And all the people, except for maybe some of the people around us or with our family, everyone else becomes an object. The reason I'm bringing up this image for you is because we often, I think, think of these sort of beautiful panoramic, picturesque images of Jesus' crucifixion being up on an open hillside. But the reality was that Jesus was crucified right outside an extremely busy gate of Jerusalem. These ancient cities... And you can still see this if you go to Jerusalem today. I haven't been there, but you have the old city. These ancient cities were built compact and small because they needed to be surrounded by walls. And for purposes of defense, you didn't want to have miles and miles of walls. So everyone who wanted to be protected was inside that city. And the, the streets were often extremely narrow. Everything was crammed together. And when Jesus was crucified, we are at the busiest time of year. In Jerusalem, we are right on the verge of the Passover. In fact, it would be like uh, you know we talk about Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving being the busiest travel day. This is the day before the Sabbath, before the Passover. We are talking about everyone scrambling, trying to get to where they need to be and get everything bought for this big meal. So there's thousands more people in Jerusalem than normal. And they're all coming here. There would have been tents, you know, pitched all across the hillsides around. And Jesus is right outside one of the busiest gates where he's being crucified. So this is one of the few open squares, open spaces. And it's not that large where these men are being crucified. I mentioned last week the Romans crucified people near busy intersections because they wanted everyone to see. This was their way of keeping the populace in line and putting terror into them so that they would behave. And so Jesus was crucified right outside one of these busy gates with this mass of humanity going from one place to another. And so I wonder how many thousands of people that day passed by Jesus, not even aware or realizing that they were witnessing the most significant event in all of human history. Maybe they took a glance, and we're going to hear what some of them had to say as they did. But most of them probably were in their tunnel vision and were just walking by, passers-by. That's who we're looking at today. As you look at who Jesus saw from the cross, he would have seen thousands of people going back and forth and back and forth, getting ready to celebrate this holy festival. Mark 15, 25 to 30, is what we're going to be reading together today. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. People walking by insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! So you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, help us to hear your voice and be inspired by you as we turn into your scriptures this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I did a little bit of an intro to crucifixion last week, and I know we as Christians, many of us have heard about this a lot, but just to be reminded, you know, crucifixion was reserved for conquered peoples. This was not something that was typically done for Roman citizens. It was done for those who Rome deemed to be less than. And it was a way to keep the population in control. It was really the most hideous and torturous form of death that they could come up with. The purpose of crucifixion was to prolong death and suffering so that people would have to see people dying slowly. And it was a death by exposure, not by typically by loss of blood, although in Jesus' case we think that was a contributing factor. But normally it was a death by exposure. It was something that was meant to make people cringe. It was something that was meant to make people disgusted and fearful. And so that's why it's all the more shocking when we think about how the crowd before Jesus was crucified, before this festival, they were gathered and they were shouting, crucify him, instead of perhaps hang him or off with his head or other forms of execution that would have been used by the Romans. This form of execution was used for the worst of the criminals or for those who were the worst against Rome. So in this case, the charge king of the Jews is a political charge against Jesus. He's charged with trying to be someone against Rome, someone uprising against Rome. What would Jesus have seen when he was where he was at, and I mentioned that he's right outside of the gate. And the book that inspired me to talk about this, and it's one I, I encourage you to read. It's a classic. It's called "What Jesus Saw from the Cross," and it was written by a priest who lived in Jerusalem in more modern times, but still spent a lot of times reflecting on what that would have been like. And so, <clears throat> where Jesus was crucified, this Calvary Hill. This was just a slightly raised hill. It wasn't a massive hill. It would have been right outside the city gates. But where Jesus was at, being about 10 feet off the ground on this slightly raised piece of ground, he would have had a view of a lot of different things that you would not have seen from the ground. So as Jesus looked around from the cross, he would have seen the gate of Ephraim at about 60 yards distant, this main or 80 yards, this main gate. The temple would have been about a quarter mile away, and that was the largest building, one of the largest buildings in the ancient world at the time, so it's still being built. Jesus would have been able to see that. The Tower of Antonia, the Roman fortress, was about 400 yards away. And then that pinnacle where Jesus was tempted to be thrown off, to throw himself off by the devil, that highest point in the temple wall would have been about 700 yards away. Of course, the hills surrounding Jerusalem, these hills where the people of God had had often turned away from God and worshiping other um, gods on the high places, he would have been able to see those. As I mentioned, the hills would have been covered and dotted with tents at this time, with pilgrims coming for this festival. He would have been able to see um, the, the change of the land that went into the Valley of Gehenna, this place where the worst kind of worship, a sacrifice of children happened, this garbage dump of the city, this place where we get the name for hell. And he would have been able to see the Mount of Olives, where he spent so much time in the garden teaching and talking with his disciples. And of course, all around as he looked at the horizon, Jesus would have been viewing this promised land, this place where God said, I'm going to bring you to this place. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And now in this promised land, their God 
is being put to death. So in this sermon series for Lent, we're taking a look at these things that Jesus saw, these things we know he saw because of the scriptures recorded. Last week we looked at the soldiers. And we mentioned how this phrase that was recorded from Luke, who says that Jesus looked down at these men who were killing him and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And we believe that, that that's really the key phrase for the series as we go through this, because Jesus, we believe, said that not just to those who are putting him to death, but also to those complicit, the Jewish leaders, we're going to be looking at them, to the crowd who was around them, and by extent even to us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So this week, we're looking at those who just passed by, who just walked by the cross. The jeering and mocking of those, specifically because that's what's recorded. So not everyone who passed did, but some certainly did choose to insult Jesus. Verse 29 said, people walked by insulting him, shaking their heads and saying, Hi! You're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days for you. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Mark actually doesn't record that being said. That's only recorded in John's Gospel. So it's really interesting that we hear this from the lips of these passing, those passing by. Clearly, they knew some of Jesus' teaching. He wasn't just a random person being put to death. Because they, they knew who he was. So if they know his teaching, they know also probably of his healing. They know that he had saved some people. And so they hurled this insult at him. They had heard something about him saying that his temple was going to be destroyed and rebuilt. Jesus said this in John 2.19. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jewish leaders replied to him, they said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. This is what John records. This is in John 2. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said what he had said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they're hurling this insult at Jesus. You said you would destroy the temple and raise it in three days, you know. And actually don't realize that he's in the process of fulfilling this very thing that he said. Of course, I had probably heard about his healings too, as I mentioned. You know, what is it about human nature that seems to delight in kicking someone when they're down? Especially a good person. I've thought about this many times in you know, youth sporting events that I've been to. Um, I, I we just got done with basketball season, and I find it so interesting how often people will um, cheer when an opposing player misses a free throw, for example. And I have always tried to tell myself, and I have to constantly do this because of my competitive nature, even when I'm a parent or coach or fan, I always say in my head, root for, not against. Root for, so I want to root for the people playing, not against, especially when we're talking about youth sports. But there's something in us that seems to find some twisted pleasure and some delight at times in seeing a good person struggle and then kicking them when they're down. Of course, those crowds were passing by. They didn't understand all that Jesus meant when he said that he would tear it down, or he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. 
Because if Jesus came down from the cross, then he wouldn't have to rebuild the temple, his body. So in this twisted way, they're actually encouraging Jesus with their very taunts. Matthew records them as also saying, the passers-by is also saying, if you're the Son of God, come down. So really, what they're getting at, what they're taught is, what they're saying is, prove it. Right? Prove you're the Son of God. Prove you're the King of the Jews. Oh, this is a, this is a taunt. It's as old as the world, I think. Kids, learn this. Like, just, again, almost instinctively, this whole prove it taunt I was reminded, as I was thinking about this, of the, the Christmas Story movie. If you've seen that movie, there's a scene in there that I just love because it reminds me of myself, my, my brother, my, our friends when we were kids, and the things that we did. And in the movie, there's this kid named Flick, and they're out in the cold at recess at school, and there's a flagpole, and it's freezing cold outside, right? And Flick says... Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole? That's dumb. And Schwartz, his friend, says, that's because you know it'll stick. And then Flick says, you're full of it. And Schwartz says, oh yeah? And Flick says, yeah. And Schwartz says, well, I double dog dare you. And, Ra- and uh, you know, this Ralphie is an adult. He's narrating the story. So the narrator comes in the movie and he says, now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was there but a triple dare you? And then the coup de gras of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. And then Schwartz says, I triple dog dare you. And then the narrator says, Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare you and going right for the throat. And then, of course, he sticks his tongue to the flagpole and it gets stuck and he starts screaming and hollering and then the recess bell rings and all the kids leave him. And then there's that great scene when they're sitting in the classroom and the teacher's saying, uh, where is, you know, and they're all looking around and they're all pretending like they don't know. Anyway, prove it, right? I dare you. And that's really, I mean, it's a, it's a childish insult, really, as these pastors by for going by Jesus. The faulty assumption in the taunt of these passers-by is this. They assume that if anyone had the power to save themselves from crucifixion, that they would use it. And therefore, Jesus doesn't have any power. That's the faulty assumption. They're missing the possibility that there's a greater power, a stronger power, a power that would hold someone to a cross and would will someone to enter into death out of love. Jesus, we know as Christians, is modeling for us a path that's very different than the path that the world follows when he's on that cross. He's modeling a path that puts others before yourself. He's modeling a path that teaches us that sacrifice and service have a higher value, a greater value than self-preservation and being saved, and being served, excuse me. 
Jesus sees the crowds passing by. Think about this. He knows each and every name. As God's son, he knows each and every name. He knows each and every heart. I imagine that each and every person passing, even those taunting him, is actually a source of strength for our Lord. Because each and every person is a reminder of why he is there and the love he has. The Gospels make it clear that Jesus had the power to come off the cross. He could have called angels to come to his rescue at any moment. But the remaining on the cross was a choice for our good. As we think about our response as Christians to the things we face in this world, I think it's good for us to just talk about the thing that, you know, is keeping many people away this morning, which is this coronavirus, this most recent epidemic that we face. Some of you may have seen my blog post this week where I address this question. I called it, Will We Bury the Bodies? And the reason I called it that is because this is not even close to the first time in the world that the Christian church has had to face an epidemic or a pandemic. In fact, um, there was one that, I mean, we are more, and I want to say this, we are more connected globally, I think, than any other time in the past, and that certainly changed the dynamics of it. But I was reading in this book um, that is a really good book by a professor I had, Jerry Sitzer, called Resilient Faith, How the Early Christian Third Way Changed the World, and it's an exploration of the early church and how they lived. And as a historian, he talks about different things. And one thing he talked about is the plague in AD 250. So in AD 250, there was a plague that hit the Roman Empire, and it wiped out about a fifth of the population. So imagine that. About one in every five people died from this plague. It was so bad that people began leaving the bodies of the dead and the dying just out in the streets. Now, they didn't have an understanding of biology and germs and viruses and things like that, like we do today. But they, everyone knew your proximity to someone being sick is more makes it more likely that you're going to get sick and that you're going to die. One, um, not Christian, but one Greek biographer at the time, he wrote, all were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends. Exposing meaning leaking them out on the streets. As if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of a plague, one could exclude death itself also. So while many of these people were fleeing and they were hunkering down and looking only after themselves, the Christian response was different. The Christian response was that they began to wash the dead. They began to wrap them and they began to bury them. And then they began to care for the sick. Nobody else was doing this at the time. Christians knew, they, they weren't stupid, they knew that by helping the sick and being around the dying or the dead, that they were more likely to get sick and die themselves. But when a Christian who was helping the sick when they got sick and they died, and then when the sick person that they were helping recovered, you know what Christians thought? 
We are taking their sickness and their death upon ourselves. And because of that, they're living. And they believed that they were doing what Jesus had done, modeling that. Now, we know that that logic isn't correct scientifically, but it's actually not incorrect theologically. Because, you see, what happened was that Christian, the Christian community had a much higher survival rate from this plague than anyone else did for two main reasons. Number one, they had people who cared for them when they were sick, so they were more likely to recover. They weren't just left out to starve to death or to die of exposure. So Christians were much more likely to survive. And then those who were helping the sick who got sick themselves and survived, they developed a population of immune caregivers who then began continuing this act of caring for others. So theologically, they weren't that far off. By risking their own lives and serving others, they were actually carrying the burden of the sickness and death of others, just as their Lord had done. Much of our adult lives, we spend running from one thing to the next. We're busy people. We're running to worship, we're running to the grocery store, we're running our kids to one activity to another, running to school, running to work, running to a meeting, running to get gas, running to get home. And in the midst of all that, we have to find time to eat, which I believe is one of God's graces that He built us as human beings to need to eat about three times a day at least, or we have to slow down. Although, even there, we made it possible so you could get fast food and drive throughs and just keep running and keep moving, right? And what I want to ask, when we think about these passers-by, we're just moving past the cross, getting their work done, trying to beat the sun going down, getting ready for the holiday. Is it possible that as times as Christians that we're running right by the presence of Christ? Do we view people around us as simply objects to be avoided? as objects and obstacles to be overcome and left behind? Or do we view each person we meet as a unique individual, as someone created by our Lord and loved by God, a person for whom Jesus died? As those, I think all of us who have dismissed our Lord too many times to count, that have also been forgiven too many times to count. My prayer is that we would have the heart of Jesus Christ for those around us. We don't need to live in the guilt. We can see in ourselves and see in the passersby a view of ourselves, maybe too often than we want. But we're also reminded by the cross that our Lord looks upon us in forgiveness and calls us to live differently. Let's pray. God, it's so easy for us to slip into that mindset, especially if we're not feeling well, or especially if we're fearful ourselves, to fall into this mindset of just wanting to get from point A to point B and avoid anyone in our path. It's challenging, Lord, that you have called us as Christians, as your disciples, to be different. If we're to be different, we certainly need your strength to do it and the courage that's given to us
through the Holy Spirit. We ask for this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.